Tyson never gave this dude a mic. Here we go! He's killing it. Watch out! He's so in love and he's mad about it. Mad love. That's why we say. Come on, man, you already know. Mad love. Quite an honor introduced to you by my father. Love and warmth in all the genres musically. But bluegrass is our thing. I love that somehow you taught me it'll all be okay. It's been four years now and I finally have the words to say. Put on a Deborah Allen vinyl dance till dawn. I hope to be like you. We have just introduced our newest song that has just gotten on our rotation. This is by Bethany, and it's called Just Like You. It's a dedication to her aunt. But we're talking about gunkles today. Wow. That was a beautiful, (laughs) beautiful song. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. This is QSJ Radio. Our special guest today is Michael Dumlow, right? Dumlow? Dumlow. Dumlow. I there knew I knew I had to throw the Filipino in there. I was kind of <laughs> I was like, uh. but uh, Michael Dumlao, he they is an artist, author, activist, equipped with more than twenty one years of advancing diversity, equity, and social justice through the award winning brand strategy, digital marketing, and creative storytelling in corporate, federal, academic, and nonprofit environments. He led the rebrand of a Fortune 500 company as its director of brand and serves as a senior advisor for leaders in defense and intelligence. Michael was born in the Philippines, the capital, Manila, raised in Sydney, Australia, and schooled in Santa Barbara, California. Bro. <laughs> Residing in Washington, D.C. with his Peruvian husband, Daniel, and their rescue dog named America. He is the proud gunkle to more than 50 far-flung nibblings and protégés to whom this book, The Wisdom of Gunkles, is dedicated. Michael, welcome to QSJ Radio. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for that kind introduction. Tell me about you before starting this 21 years of changing the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you just said, I was born in Manila, Philippines, and I was born during the Marcos dictatorship under mm-hmm. martial law. And I always mention that as my origin because for those that um, are, are knowledgeable of history, um, you know that in the early 80s, that is what prompted And after 30 years of oppressive rule, that is what prompted the Filipino people to rise up um, in what's known as people power and the people power movement. And growing up, I saw what happens when an oppressed people, you know, come together and collectively rise up to overthrow all that oppresses them and and to decide for themselves how they will rule. 
and as well as the chaos that ensues, the instability and the and all that happens right after the shackles come off, so to speak. Um, shortly thereafter, um, you know, my family moved to Sydney, Australia, to join my father's family, and then shortly after that, we moved to Santa Barbara, California, and uh, all of that informs basically the first you know twenty twenty one years of my life um, before I moved to DC. Um, and constant state of, of, I would say, dislocation, disruption, and transformation, constant departure, in many ways, I think, is what informs my my approach um, to my career, my approach to life, my approach to gunkling, which we'll talk about soon, I hope. Um, and in many ways, um, also it affects and has impacted many of my career choices as well. And certainly a lot of the choices that I made in this book. So for those who are just tuning in right now and have not heard the term gunkle, it is a gay uncle, correct? Yeah, so absolutely. the gay uncle, if you don't have one, you need to find one. Okay. <laughs> that's kind of that's what I got out of this. All right. Um, so you, as uh, you're, you're, you're finding all this, and I, I love that you bring that up in that history because there's a reason and a passion while you were young, there, there were probably things you couldn't do or maybe mm-hmm. afraid of, 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 I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, but I, I, I get it. You know, if this land here fell into that, or we almost did, let's just put it like that. <laughs> oh my, I can't say this stuff, but I can. Um, your identity, you knew this, how old and, and when was, when was it a free time for you? I would say that I knew, like many LGBTQ people, certainly like many gay men, um, like many of us, we we knew at an early age that we were different. And more importantly, that we were going to, we were going to have to come to a choice whether or not to follow a path that was clearly going to be not only different from our brothers and sisters, our parents, what have you, but specifically a path that was probably going to be in defiance to that was that was what, what was expected of us to follow. Um, I knew as, as early as five years old, honestly, okay. and I still remember the very specific moment um, in the Philippines. There's a very famous parade festival called Santa Cruz and it's a celebration of uh, of the Christ child and um, there is a special uh, procession that goes down the village and went down my village um, where there is a princess and a prince and I was chosen to be the prince Um, and I knew very early on that at some point I may have wanted to be the princess but I knew I couldn't even though I asked um, so they made me the prince. So then I, I, I insisted that if I wasn't going to be the princess, that I was going to be the glitziest, most glamorous prince there was. And I distinctly remember making very deliberate young five-year-old toddler choices in my fashion <laughs> that basically made me, it, it wasn't my first like experience with drag. It felt like I wore a bright silver sequin thing. I had a cape. What five-year-old has a cape? And, uh, <laughs> and, you know, and you know what, kudos to my mom and, and, and certain people in my life where they, said you know what this is fun yes let him dress up but that was that moment when i realized that it was going to i wasn't going to be like other boys i wasn't going to want to you know dress up you know and and look like a soldier i wanted to dress up and look like a heroine i wanted to look up and and dress like um you know something that was 
more that was shinier, frankly, than what I mm. saw the other boys opt for. And while that didn't necessarily inform my sexuality, it did inform this very clear idea in my head that I was going to be different and that I was probably going to get bullied for it. Because when I did go out there, while the parents loved it, all the neighborhood boys thought I was like, oh, my God, why, why do you look so gay? Why do you look so like this? Why do you look like a girl? Why do you look like that? And it made me realize that anything that was going to be natural and intrinsic to me was probably going to be met with with either violence, frankly, with bullying, with defiance from others. Um, and then that, of course, progressed all the way into my early tween years when I started to realize an attraction towards boys. Um, and then certainly, you know, my teenager, like many adolescents, I realized that I, you know, had an attraction, you know, to a very, very specific kind of person. And that person was defiantly not female, <laughs> was very male. Um, and having grown up in a very religious uh, Catholic and then eventually evangelical Christian household, I knew that in the context of that realization was going to come a lot of hardship, not just for myself, but for my parents, because we I was now embodying everything that we were taught was either sinful or, or, or mm. abhorrent to God. Yep, that freaking <laughs> Catholic church, I tell you, I mean, I'm telling you. I know colonization didn't <laughs> it doesn't do any anyways that's a whole different show today we bring in michael Dumlau, uh the author of the wisdoms of gunkles now let me tell you currently you're on a book tour i am you have taken I, i'm gonna believe like all your resources to do this but before we get into that the bio says an artist. What mm-hmm. type of artist were you or are you? Uh, am I? So I, I, um, I basically grew up painting, drawing, and really, um, you know, dipping into like the, the visual arts from a very, very young age. I was also musical as a child, and I've continued the musical practice. Um, I actually now sing with the Gay Men's Chorus of Washington, so shout nice. out to GMCW in D.C. Um, and so a lot of my artistry comes through music, comes through the visual arts. Um, I'm also known in D.C. as, a, as frankly, I'll say it, I'm a bit of a fashion icon. Um, I love Okay. Fashion. Actually, <laughs> oh, um, what do I got here? Oh, snap. Just, just okay. go to Instagram and you'll see my. I see snap. it. I see it. It's lovely. <laughs> and I um and I actually, actually literally um uh, just walked across Melrose Avenue this morning and this afternoon and bought some new costumes. So I uh, I I love fashion. I love the I love the physicality of fashion and the fact you can literally put on and become art. Um, and so for me, it's definitely a sense of performance. It's a sense of storytelling. I would say a lot of my artistry um, is manif- manifests in this in various ways that one tells stories, whether that is through music, whether that is through the visual arts, whether that is through video and film, which is what I do professionally in a lot of ways, um, or frankly, literally what I just did. I wrote a book, right? So it's a way for me to express my creativity through storytelling, which is really, I think, the core of my artistry. I think is the core of your life because this is like is. super <laughs> lovely. So this is a debut, correct? Yes. So yes. now for work, okay, for work, mm-hmm. this is the big one, right? Because I think this is where you started changing lives internally and then came outside, right? Like um, where was it that you were working? I mean, I'm sure you can't tell me the Fortune 500 company, but where was you it that you need – that hard. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't mention them out of agreements, but um, I actually believe it or not, I still work there. <laughs> okay, that's nice. They supporting yeah, you yeah, right so, now. 
Yes, I am. I, I do acknowledge the privilege of being able to work remotely, the privilege of being able to have a job through the pandemic. I mean, I recognize that what's with and the fact that I had a job that supported me while I, I pursued my dream mm. writing. Um, and they are incredibly supportive. Um, I'm sure they also like the fact that they can now say that they have a not only a senior brand director who rebranded a Fortune 500, but also somebody who's now published a book. Um, so, you know, I'm sure there's certainly a benefit to them. But I think more importantly, there's been a fantastic benefit to me in that. Yes, I have a big, big job. I have a very um, interesting, uh, complex job that I have had for several years and that I've been honing my craft through for 21 years. Um, and I would say, actually, if anything, that is what allowed me the the space, the mental space and okay. the stability to be able to write something like oh, The Wisdom of Uncles. The activism. The activism. Don't tell me this was some 2020 stuff, okay? When does, because <laughs> I know that was like a peak, but when did this start? And and what was your what was your first event? I, I would say actually my activism came from my grandmother, uh, my Lola, on my especially my paternal Lola. Um, that is a grandmother, the term for grandmother in Tagalog, in Filipino language. Um, when uh, she raised us, she was a politician herself. She was a um, a leader in the church, a leader in the community, and she always pressed upon her children and her grandchildren this idea of legacy. Um, indeed, I think a lot of that stems from our history growing up through a uh, dictatorship, for example, and watching a people, um, you know, rise up. And she was definitely part of a lot of those those movements. Um, she was an advisor to leaders, to presidents, and she was always there to keep people accountable, to make sure that people knew that people like her were watching them to make sure that they were not, um, you know, leaning into the corruption that was pervasive and continues to be pervasive in a lot of countries, including my homeland. And and I think I just saw that, right? Um, and I saw her example. Oh, and by the way, she was a single mother. She was a single mother who wow. raised four kids in the 70s, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, right? And Oof. and that, to me, the fact that she didn't remarry, she was a single mother through a very difficult time in um, in her country's history, raised four amazing kids, and then raised their kids as well. Um, you know, for me, that showed, you know, sort of like the resilience that one can um, can embody for themselves, um, and that for me is where I got my activism. Shortly thereafter, um, you know, I was very involved in, um, you know, immigration, um, sort of like in, in immigration and in, in immigration reform, um, you know, as, as early as high school. And when I came out um, in high school and in college, I started becoming much more active in the, you know, queer rights and queer liberation movements. Um, and then I think that just kept growing and growing and growing until I found myself in my corporate jobs, especially the Fortune 500 that I am in now. And I discovered that the, I occupied a unique space where I brought in a lot of these ideas about equity, about diversity, about inclusion and belonging. And having come from the kind of background that my grandmother and my parents instilled in us, this social justice um, sort of like background and this want to build you know, equality for all, I brought that into my corporate space as well. I brought that into my very, very, you know, serious job, um, you know, in, in my client spaces, in my corporate spaces. And I started to work very hard in activating my activism in workspace, in workplaces mm -hmm. and making sure that our workplaces are uh, diverse, are equitable, are inclusive and create safe spaces for people not only to feel like they belong, but feel like they can thrive as their full authentic selves. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I have committed to for many, many, many years, um, more than 10 years um, as a senior leader in that space um, within diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
Um, and I'm really honored to say that actually this year we were um, awarded, um, oh, sorry, we were nominated for a very significant national recognition for that. Several years ago, we were actually um, awarded um, several, um, you know, recognitions about how we were able to really build that sense of safe space and equality in our, in our, um, in our workplace. And I'm really proud of that. And I feel like a lot of that is also what I try to infuse into this book is this idea that you can be an activist anywhere, right? You can be in the streets or you can be in the boardroom. But as long as you have that that desire and that humility, right, to want to make the world a better place that's equal for as many people as possible, for all, ideally, um, then you can activate that anywhere. If you just join us, the author, The Wisdom of Gunkles, Michael Dumla, Dumla, Dum. Dum Lao. Dum Lao. There you go. I'm trying to <laughs> I got a we'll lot of I got a lot of Filipino friends. Um is joining us today and we're talking about our uh, his little history of how this came. What's crazy is the first three stories all end up in DC. Okay? <laughs> So I'm sitting here and I'm like, he was just chilling at the house. And then they just came to his house and they tell him all this stuff. And they are incredible people. Let me let me bring some of this stuff up. If you guys didn't know, this is available for purchase on Amazon. And if the link is not dropping, I'm definitely going to get the link to drop. But the uh, wisdom of gunkles.com, right? Yes, yes. Everything's right behind him. If you guys didn't see, Literally right. <laughs> follow him on the Instagram. Uh, definitely um, loving everything that's going on right now. So before we get to this book, okay, now you're, you got all this stuff going on, job, good, mm-hmm. taking it by storm, icon, congratulations. <laughs> and then you want to do a book. Like, did you get bored or was it something that you just always wanted to do? And, and, or was it, was it really these people that you met that made you want to tell their stories before someone else told the wrong story? I don't know. Yeah, actually it wasn't, it wasn't the people. It was actually, uh, it was, it was the children actually that prompted it. Um, so to answer your first question, have I always wanted to write a book? Yes, absolutely. In fact, my mother reminded me about halfway through writing this book that I was fulfilling a dream that I had stated I was going to fulfill when I was like 12 or 13 years old. Okay. So I'm proud to have done that. Um, but more importantly, I'm proud to have executed against a promise that I made to my cousin um, and her daughters that I would put into words conversations that we were having um, around their identity and their sense of place in the world. So um, in the beginning chapter, I talk about my my cousin, my yes. auntie cousin. Yes. <laughs> you have to read, the, yeah. I think, the second or third paragraph to understand. Yes, what you got to ask me. It's the great aunt with the brother. Here's the thing about that. It's like, I went into detail because I knew that a Filip- if a Filipino picked, like read that, they were like, oh, yeah, no, I got four of those. <laughs> <laughs> I got four of those auntie cousins, auntie uncles. Like, yeah, you got it. 
Um, so she was, um, you know, she's she's currently married, um, you know, to an African American man. So and they have half African American, half Filipino daughters um, that I'm very very proud to be a gunkle of um, and a guardian of. And in the chaos of last year, right, and the heels of the Me Too uh, movement and and discussion and, and the rise of anti API hate because of COVID. And of course, the you know the global awakening to racial and social inequity and, and injustice with Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, these half Filipino, half Asian, half Black women, young women, were starting to really grapple, frankly, with their sense of self and worth and value. And um, my cousin felt that I, as a queer, frequently femme-presenting um, immigrant of color. Um, was uniquely equipped, um, you know, to help these girls sort of like navigate these conversations and more importantly, remind them of their worth, of their value, of their strength, of their limitless potential. And um, in the words that ensued and the conversations that that followed, um, you know, my cousin said, you know what, there's a lot of things here that should be put into a book, that should be put into words. And, and, and I think you've got something here that could mm. help a lot of people. Um, and so I did. I pitched it basically to a to a to a publishing company. And funny enough, the original concept I actually had was going to be one of those like urban outfitters like books where you'd have like line illustrations of chicly dressed gay men holding up martini glasses saying, yes, girl, you got this. And it would be something between like a self-help book or a makeup tutorial. And it was almost time to be like that. And then I started to, uh, you know, I started to go out and, and talk to my friends. Um, you know, there were drag queens, makeup artists, financial experts. Wow, you did the research and everything. Wow. <laughs> I was literally trying to get all across the spectrum of different ways that people can offer advice. And then without prompting each one of them, would offer me their life story. Wow. Like, and I was wow. like, oh, so this is the book. The book isn't about necessarily the wisdom. The book is about the journey from trauma to triumph. Mm. And that's what I had to, to unlock, right? And, the, and that's where the wisdom comes from. It's that surviving and thriving through that journey of trauma to triumph, however they choose to define triumph, right? And, and that is also what, frankly, makes a lot of these incredibly unapologetically queer stories so universal um, to anyone out there who reads it. I'm going to read some stuff, okay? <laughs> I really like this book. I really love this book, actually. As I poured some whiskey, lemon and honey, into hot water, I asked her why she considered DC. Now, if you guys don't know, this is a part of a book where his... I don't know what kind of cousin it is. I think <laughs> you got to read. She's a cousin. She's a cousin. Okay. She's a cousin. Yeah. She's a cousin. Cause she's younger, but she's an aunt. And okay. Yeah, it's, so, brown, it's brown people relations. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and she has just phoned you probably a few weeks ago or something like that and says, Hey, can I stay with you for a while? And now the questions are coming out. Right. As I poured some whiskey, lemon, and honey into hot water, I asked her why she considered D.C. That's when she said, well, I know I needed to get as far away from Las Vegas as I could, but I didn't want to be completely alone either. Then I remember that you live in D.C. And I knew of all the people in our family, you were the least likely to judge me for what happened. I mean, you left too, and I know it wasn't under the best circumstances either, especially since you're, well, 
but you're surviving and thriving. And I thought maybe I could do that too. Start fresh like you. So here, here is me thinking, and it, it doesn't, and as you said, it's universal. Someone giving me that conversation, first of all, my heart's going to drop and it's going to say, you don't know what I've been through to get to here. <laughs> when she was talking to you then, what was that feeling for you? Uh, a feeling of, honestly, kinship, right? And almost a responsibility. Um, at, at that point, I was almost like a big brother. I'd, I'd say less a uncle, less a cousin, less a nephew. However, we, however, we're actually related, but frankly more of like a brother and actually probably more importantly, more of a friend, like a friend that I knew she needed to act as a safe harbor, as a safe refuge at that time. Um, and what I saw in, in that statement, in those words was uh, a mirror, frankly, to my own experience. Cause I too had to move to literally the other side of a continent um, to escape and to also find out, you know, what was next for me and what, how can I rebuild my life? Um, and it was also in that moment that I realized that, you know, this is a journey that many of us have taken. And it is something that I took very, very seriously, you know, when she came to see me, um, knowing that it was going to be very critical those, that moment, that evening, the next couple of days, because how I was able to support her, how I was able to build a safe space around her was going to determine, you know, if she would stay, if she would go back, if she would go someplace else if she would continue to be dislocated um either from a sense of place or even a sense of self mm. or if i could start helping her build basically a sense of place for her at that moment so that she can at least start to heal um from what had become a very traumatic experience if you guys are just joining us again the author of the wisdom of gunkles michael is here with us talking so i get to one of these parts here and it kind of threw me for I, th I think you did this on purpose, which is great artistry. Okay. So I get to the Explorer. All right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's go. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. So I get to the Explorer. African-American. Mm -hmm. Gay. And disabled. Mm -hmm. Super handsome. You say that like 30 times in this chapter, by the way. <laughs> Okay, just to let you know. <laughs> so you get to DC. His story, it gets from all these countries that he. All right, let me let me let me let me drop the book real quick. Okay, the yeah, Explorer has an American. First, first, let me tell you guys first. The first two chapters are two immigrants. Okay, the third chapter, and, and including yourself on that one, mm -hmm. the third is an American mm -hmm. who deals with the internal bee crap that we deal with here. House gets burned down by the Ku Klux Klan, mm -hmm. and then they got to go and travel, and then they got to, you know, find themselves. There's a passage here. I'm telling you, man, this book, you guys got to get this book. I'm telling you. And make sure you got like some, I was listening to it with like instrumentals in my head. So as the scenes got dramatic, the songs did too. And I'm oh, like, oh, 
so what I what I what I got out of what I got out of um this was he became a gunkle through a childhood friend. Mm-hmm. You know, the childhood friend really liked him, wanted to marry him, mm-hmm. but he obviously is and she she mm-hmm. you know was was not getting it like <laughs> like no i'm good um and becomes a gungle through her kids mm-hmm. i i know i know it lands back at dc i get it how did you meet him mm-hmm. and not only that how did you meet how did you meet him and when did he decide to tell you his story? Absolutely. So um, many people in the book um, I met through the Gaiman's Course of Washington. Um, and I owe a lot to the Gaiman's Course of Washington because they resuscitated a love for music and performance um, that I thought had I had given away and frankly, you know, put away for a really long time. And and uh, the person in this book, they, the person who I call the explorer in my book, um, we actually performed together on stage. Uh, we performed En Vogue's Free Your Mind. Ooh, <laughs> and, okay. Yeah, he was in a wheelchair. He was in a wheelchair. I was in heels, and we had a third person in heels. And and it was all about freedom. It was about free your mind, you know, freeing yourself from discrimination, from expectations, and, and just becoming free. And um, that's, uh, I mean, we have already been friends by then, but that's really what sealed the deal. You know, I mean, if you, 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 you sing and Vogue together, you are bonded for life. <laughs> um, and then also, um, he was literally one of the first people I, I, people I reached out to because I knew I had to have a story about, um, you know, the African-American experience, um, and about the disability experience, about what it means to travel the world, um, in a wheelchair. And what I've always marveled at at his experience, <clears throat> sorry, is the fact that even though he's in a wheelchair, he has gone to more countries, more places in the world than anyone I know. Yep. And, and when I say, you know, even though he is in a wheelchair, he has learned how to take flight. And for me, the audacity, the bravery, just the defiance against the entire world and entire childhood telling him that you are not going to get up from that chair. You are not going to leave your space. You are not, you're, you are sedentary. And him saying, F you, no, I'm going to explore and discover who I am elsewhere across the world. I had to capture that story. And so when I asked him, he said, absolutely. I want to tell my story. And I'm very honored that he chose my book to do that. It's it's amazing as I'm doing this, this I call it the Drex walk, right? It's, I'm in an <laughs> incline at 10 degrees and going 2.4 whatever the track thing says right and what what got to me was everywhere that he went and of course he was also a, an advocate right yes, yes. okay and this a is huge, the other thing is that he is a huge huge advocate for um for uh disability rights accessibility and also always calling out ableism um, especially when it is unacknowledged and when it's clearly systemic and people take it for uh, take advantage of people with disabilities because of this ableist um, you know centricity that we have in our society and what got to me was it seemed like every time he needed to get somewhere 
it didn't matter where he was from. They had a problem at the gates. They had a problem at the airport. They had a problem somewhere. I mean, he was even, what, lifted because no one had, they didn't even have access for him or even a wheelchair for him. They they somehow lost his wheelchair, so they had to lift him physically and put him on the tarmac. I mean, it's the level of dehumanization and degradation that he endures as, uh, as somebody who navigates the world in a wheelchair is amazing and yet he persists and yet he calls it out and yet he continues to travel and fly um and and i love that and and what i love too is what he wants to impart to his goddaughter that he eventually you know becomes a guardian and a, and a godparent to his friend's daughter she's african-american she's like she's a biracial um and a woman an african-american woman and she asks him like I want to travel, I want to travel, but I'm afraid they'll stare. Or when I do travel, when I have gone out there, people always look at me, they always stare at me. Um, And what he says is so instructive. He says, let them stare, right? Let them know that it is possible and that it is important and that it is critical for a black woman to travel, for a gay black man in a wheelchair to be here on these cobblestone steps, to be uh, you know, at, on this mountain, you know, to be on this tarmac, just like every other able person out there. Let me let me read this real quick. Maybe I could put in his uh, thing. I'm here to make sure she doesn't cast off the black part of herself. Mm-hmm. She was born right before President Obama was elected. And I'm here to teach her why it's important for someone biracial like her. I'm here on her 11th birthday to gift her the Afro-Futurist futurist Masterpiece Parable of the Sour by Activia Butler and Gary Polson's Hatchet, which I loved as a child. And in return, I'm here to receive her anime memes and listen to her love for otaku music and to reassure her that it's okay for a black woman who nerds out on Japanese culture when there are black people out there that may tell her otherwise, it is okay to be different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is okay to be different. I'm telling you guys, you guys got to get this book. You guys got to get this book because there's stories in here. And you know, it's crazy because when you, when you, when you're picking it up, right. And you're thinking it's going to have, these awkward sexual content and things like that. Well, there might be a history there called the whole phase, which I, I really love (laughs) because everybody has a whole phase. Some people just don't admit it. It's okay. Um, and, but other than that, it's really serious stories, serious stories. And, and, and I just want to tell your, your, your colleagues, your friends that man, I can only imagine now. Writing a book. This is your first book. Writing a book. Tutorials, this, that. Like, what was it like for you to put this together? And how long did it take for you to put it together? Yeah, so um, I worked for the publishing company. So shout out to New Degree Press, who was amazing in showing me just how complicated, complex, and rigorous. So that's what I did not anticipate was the rigor and discipline one needs to have to write a book. And the the only way I was able to get that rigor and discipline was through my editors. I had five or six of them, two in particular that really helped shape the book. 
And I will tell you, there is nothing like an editor keeping you accountable, keeping you on deadline, reminding you when you've missed a deadline, reminding you of what is at stake. Um, and also, frankly, caring about your text almost more than you do. Like there, was, there were times where I was just, oh, we'll just let it be. Let's just, and they're like, no, no, you can wow. tell that story better. You can tell that story in this way. You can choose to tell it this way, but you will reach more people telling it this way. Or you're losing the integrity of your intent in your words if you're doing this because you are being lazy. And I'm like, yes. Yeah, like, uh, yeah. <laughs> and I've been writing this thing for the past. And so I actually wrote the book relatively quickly. I was, uh, they put me through an accelerated program and I, I chose to do the accelerated program. Um, I did my interviews in about a month and a half and I wrote the whole thing in about two and a half months um, for my first manuscript, right? Wow. But getting to a manuscript is one thing. Editing it over and over and over again for a course of, you know, I'd say eight to 12 weeks afterwards, that took a lot more discipline as well because then I was ha- starting to cut things away. I was starting to reorder the chapters i was starting to say no to some chapters there were some stories that i had to leave behind to maintain the integrity and the and the tightness of the book um in fact there was a review that came back recently saying that one of the strengths of this book is the fact that it is very tight it is very constructed it is yes i was i was you know know, it's so crazy because i was thinking that i was like all right they, he just skipped like 10 years of this person's life. Okay. And then I'm like, is it, okay, we're at the current. And I'm like, wow. So it took a, it's a, some, some of these stories take a massive turn because some of them didn't know their own purpose for a very long time. And, and, and to bring us right there, it, it, shout out to the editors. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, so shout out to the editors and shout out to the rigor and professionalism of uh, of my of my publishing company and and of the publishing industry itself. Um, one thing that I'll also note is that I did not expect um, any publishing company out there to respect and understand and embody my queer identity and my queer experiences wow. and these experiences to the level that they did. I mean, I will tell you right now when you when you come into the publishing space as a writer as an LGBTQ writer. Um, it's you almost assume that people aren't going to understand what you're trying to say. Yeah. And then I discovered that that, that two of my main editors um, were themselves also LGBTQ, which uh. is absolutely not what I expected. Wow. And not to necessarily say that you know a non queer person would have taught me differently or would have led me down a different path necessarily it was just easier right because suddenly i wasn't having to explain the coming out process because they had also a coming out process i didn't have to explain homophobia um, and heterosexism because they've also had to endure that and so for me it was a shortcut but also it meant that they were as invested in it as being part Mm. of the community that Mm. i was trying to serve super understanding Woo! shout to everybody listening tune in to qsdradio.com the wisdom of the gunkles please go get that now we're gonna play a little game okay as 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 he said um i didn't i i just want to stay in the mindset that we're in right now so this game might be a little serious so i apologize for that (laughs) we have now started our fast round where our guests are asked a few questions about themselves that they wouldn't expect us to ask don't worry it's not like that Hope you didn't think we were that underground. Just to reiterate, guys, uh, it's no disclaimer. <laughs> Don't worry, I still see you. I still see okay, you. Okay, good, 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 good. 
so the book has got me into deep thought. Um, very, very of uh, understanding. And as it's not forced on me, right? People are worried about that because there's so much of forcing upon somebody to make them understand. And I'd love that. Um, I was I was worried about it too. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that was also like the like probably like stupidity in me or something. I don't know what I was expecting, but I went in there open minded. Book is lovely. Taught me life stories. Trying to figure out if I could be a better uncle, and I, you know, I'm like, yo, well, let me call my my nibblings, and I'm going to call them nibblings because Yay. because you don't know, and you don't want you don't want to be you don't want to be that person, you know. So, um, we're gonna go into some deeper questions here. Okay, if that doesn't bother you, and if it does. We can ask you if you like Pepsi or Coke. <laughs> um, where's your life headed? Oh, wow. Well, we were going there. Um, I think <laughs> my life is headed to a place where I get to do this more consistently, where I get to – well, I will say this. My, my career for the past 21 years has been to curate culture, right, to the benefit of my clients and to other people, the organizations that I work for. Oh, you get now bread. what I he want bread. to do is to go from curating culture to creating culture. Mm. And I feel like that's what I did with this book, right? I want to start to create the culture that people will now adopt and embrace and hopefully, you know, change, you know, lives for the better through that. Because I do, I have a very, very firm belief that culture matters so much. It, it moves mountains, right? How it, it helps us better understand who we are. It helps us better understand um, you know, our families, our origins, and, and it gives us language, right? It gives us different kinds of language to explain our experiences. And and I want to be part of the engine that, that creates that kind of understanding. I, uh, so that's where I'm going. Fraternal hero? Hold on, hold on. Um, I forgot to shut something off. No worries. Somebody shouted out Kratos. <laughs> How you doing, Kratos? Welcome to the show. Um a culture creator. Wow. That's 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 there. That's there. What are the highest and lowest parts of your life? Um I think the highest part of my life um was I know this is going to sound so incredibly cheesy, but I think <laughs> my, my, my wedding and my marriage to my husband. Okay, okay. Uh, only because, like many weddings, like it was like a convergence of different parts of our lives, but also because for not only ourselves, but for our entire family and all of our friends, it was the very, very first time that we that any of us had ever witnessed and, and borne witness to and experienced a same-sex wedding, two men getting married together. So for us, it was revolutionary. We were able to prove that, we weren't going to destroy the family or destroy the world afterwards, right? But this is our 10-year wedding anniversary this year, so I'm proud to say that we've Wow, 10 years! Okay! <laughs> yeah, 10 years. Um, I don't and, even know what that looks for, like. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, that's a highlight because, you know, we were able to prove that the world wasn't going to be, wasn't going to blow up and end, you know, with, you know, but with two, you know, two people, two men, like, deciding to, you know, show and proclaim our love for each other and, and to have our family there and continue to be there. But specifically, that was definitely a highlight. Um, I think a low point in my life was the direct opposite of that. 
it was those early days um, when I was, you know, really grappling with this, what I felt was a conflict between my faith and my identity. And when I started to, frankly, wonder if it was even worth engaging in that struggle at all, you know, contemplating suicide, contemplating, you know, like self-harm, those moments where I really wondered whether or not I was worth it, whether I had even sort of any, whether I could, you know, contribute and, and, and bring value to the world um, when the world kept saying that I had none. And so for me, I think that was definitely a low point. And I'm very, very grateful that I had, you know, even the inkling of a support network and, and a reminder of what my faith is based off of um, and that I did not go through, you know, those those idea, ideations and, and, and instinct. And then instead I chose to live. I chose to to find value in my in my life and my worth. I know that I can bring some good something good and some light into the world. I hate to touch on this subject, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> how would you react if there was an irrefutable proof that God did not exist? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I I don't think it would necessarily change <laughs> anything <laughs> about me, only because you know whether or not you know. There is, a, you know, a higher being out there. I still believe fundamentally in the goodness that is within, that is inherent to us, um, and, and inherited within. Um, I've actually continued to grapple with my faith. I mean, I do believe that there is a higher entity. I just don't necessarily believe that we have to uh, engage in an organized system to to believe it, nor to to activate it nor to benefit from my it. thumbs up is right. with you <laughs> right um and so, so many I, rules like bro do you love me in that like guys, <laughs> yeah i i think i definitely fall more into the you know direct relationship to whatever being is, exists that i believe exists and more importantly showcasing you know love for your fellow humans for humanity here and now and not waiting to do it until later or waiting for a, a, a leader, a book, a, a dogma to tell me how to express that love. Um, you know, I feel that, you know, we are inherently able to express that love ourselves. So uh, for me, I don't think it necessarily would change. Although I do know that I would then have to express a lot of compassion and empathy for everyone who will suddenly feel lost, right? And who will suddenly feel that their entire world and their and everything that they based their entire identities on will have suddenly disappeared. I think it then becomes sort of like incumbent on those of us, um, you know, who may not be as affected to then show the kind of compassion that we would have expected from them. If you guys are just joining us, the wisdom of Gunkel's author, Michael Dumlao, is here. Dumlao, Dumlao. Dumlao, yes. Ah, almost. <laughs> That's right, man. No, your Filipino friends, they'll, they'll, they'll set you They right. will not forgive me for this, okay? I owe them like five karaoke's. So, <laughs> the, um, so we got into the deep part of the, uh, the whole, uh, fast round. Um, I do want to get into our funny questions and then we'll go into the continuation of your book tour and how did you organize that? Because that's a whole mess to me. Oh my God. <laughs> I bet you right now you're like relaxing, but then it's like, I gotta go. I gotta go. All right. Um, if you guys are just tuning in, if you guys have any questions in the chat, please, you know, this is live. We'll definitely shout you guys out and, um, definitely, definitely want to make sure that we, get you guys in because i know some of you guys are watching and you're just like you know what's going on here but you know we're 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 
We're urban people. Let's get serious. Okay, we deal with a lot. One of the funniest questions, which everybody hates me asking, okay? I don't know why they hate me asking this. It's I think it's funny. Is cereal soup? Yes, 100%. It's soup. I mean, if definition of soup is that it is, um, you know, bits of meal and food floating in some sort of liquid, then sure. Why not call it soup? Oh, I am the last person to ever want to constrain the definition of a word <laughs> and only align it to one specific thing. You know, if cereal wants to identify as a soup, then I say let it identify as a soup. <laughs> what is the sexiest and least sexiest name? Oh, my God. Okay, the sexiest name? Oh, dear. Uh, that's a really, really good question. How about if it's not? How about, how about it's not even a name? What if it's like one of those like... Really, actually, no, no, no. That's the opposite. I would say the least sexy names are those names that aren't names. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Why, why give me a trial? Like, why give me a struggle? Like, just, <laughs> just give me something, you know, <laughs> to help me put on my phone. Like, don't, don't make, my, don't make your name an emoji. Like, don't, yeah. don't do me like yeah. that. Um, so I think like the sexiest name is the one that you that that you make for yourself. <laughs> However you want to call yourself, that is the sexiest name. What invis? What's invisible, but you wish people could see? Oh, God. Um, what is invisible that, you wish, that I wish people can see? Um, I think that moment when you realize that you accomplished something you never thought you could. Wow. And it doesn't yes. have to be big, right? Yeah. I, I will actually tell you, you know what, to, 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 because you're going to ask me about my tour. Um, you know that moment where you think you're going to miss a flight, but you Stop. don't? You get through, like you get through the gate, yeah, and the gate closes behind you, and you sit down in your seat, and you're like huffing and puffing, and you're cursing the world, but at the same time you're like, I made it. Wow, that feeling of you <laughs> making your seat and sitting in your chair and making flight—that right there, my what? friend, should be something people can see. Don't tell me that was the start of the tour. Oh my god! <laughs> wow. But you know what I'm talking about, right? It's yes. Like, that feeling you're never not going to make, not going to be able to make it, and then you make it. That that elation. That is what I think. If anyone ever gets to experience something, they need to experience that. <laughs> in 40 years, what would people be nostalgic for? Oh, dear God. You know, the sad thing is, is I think in 40 years, they'll be nostalgic for something stupid like TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> the same way that once, I really recently, I was kind of sort of a little bit nostalgic for my old MySpace page. Wow. Was, you, was, with the HTML. Like digital archive of yes. my life, a capsule of like, that was this moment in my life when I was like, oh, that was happening to me. Who knows? I think 40 years from now, you know, the TikTok, I'm not a TikToker, but I can definitely see how, like, that is such a cultural moment for so many people around the world that they're going to be like, oh, I remember when I used to be able to do that dance and I used to floss and I used to be able to do all those things, you know, now I can't. I think, I think we're going to underestimate, frankly, like this moment in our history where those stupid, silly little things are going to be really what define specific years. Yes, yes. Oh, my God. The aliens come. <laughs> I got to use a new term. I don't know what Demi said. But um, what's the most embarrassing thing you have ever worn? Oh, God. Uh, well, Mr. Fashion, I like to think fashion I, icon. I, I rock and I slay everything. And I'm okay. Okay. However, however, um, I will say there was this one time where I lost my luggage and I was forced to wear chinos. <laughs> I was forced to wear khaki, 
Kaka Brown <laughs> to an event because they lost my thing. And it was the only pants that, that fit me that I could buy at the mall last minute. And I was photographed in and I <laughs> it and it will never surface ever again. Because <laughs> I, oh my gosh, yes. Whoever digs that up, I will both praise you <laughs> also your house anyway. Oh, I feel bad it does the research today. <laughs> what is the weirdest thing a guest has done at your house? Oh, the weirdest thing a guest has done to my house? There was this one time a friend of mine from college decided to bring his katana to my house. <laughs> position, and he was shocked that he couldn't bring it home to his house like like he couldn't bring it on the flight when he was trying to go back home so he said hey i need you to take care of something for me i was like and i thought it was going to be i don't know some books maybe some clothes maybe a car i don't know no he brought home a sword a freaking sword a katana that he had bought and it was like shocked that he couldn't bring it on the plane and so he was upset about what so my family over like over the holidays this is how you wield this katana so to my friend Chris out there, that it still ranks. We still talk about it in my own. We still talk about it in my family. <laughs> Remember your friend who brought a katana to Christmas? Yeah. <laughs> that is hilarious. I know you're in the corporate world, but what's the funniest business screw up you've ever heard of? Oh my gosh. Okay. There was this one time where the CEO of my company was doing this massive combinational in person and virtual event. And it was in a big auditorium. And in the speakers, right, you could hear the people who were dialing in from all across the world. And the funny thing is, we, I think we all, we were all thinking it. We were all thinking, like, you know someone's going to flush. You know someone's going to do something stupid. <laughs> and it happened. In a room with about 400 people in it, with people dialed in from all across the world, somebody, I guess, unmuted themselves to ask a question but forgot to mute. And it was like, and this is long before the pandemic Zoom phenomenon, right? Yeah, this yeah. Is like, this is everybody. So, this is a real meeting. Like this is a real ass meeting with real people in the room. And all of a sudden, while our CEO is talking, we hear, "Oh God, I swear I can't." Oh, I, mean, I held it for so long. Uh, like literally talking, <laughs> narrating. <laughs> and then, no, and then, no. it, but he was like, all of a sudden, we hear like, uh, "Oh damn." <laughs> But that still to this day is like, oh, yeah. That was Cisco. That was on Cisco. That's, that was, wasn't even on Zoom. That was on Cisco. No, no, no that was a straight up like conference call. Wow. <laughs> that is hilarious. <laughs> oh, my. Big shout out to everybody listening. If you're just tuning in, we're in the middle of our fast round. If you were arrested for no explanation, what would your friends and family assume you have done? Wear chinos again. <laughs> by the fashion police. <laughs> um, I think my friends and family would think that I inadvertently, accidentally, like, took something out of the museum thinking that I could, like, just... What? Because <laughs> there have been times... That's why he went to D.C. You went... And I'm like, I can wear that. And I think I should. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Oh my god! Oh man, I'm the kind of person who, like, legitimately may actually go into the Louvre one day and just like pick up a headdress and be like, "No, that no, that's for me." <laughs> wow! Wow! What are some fun and interesting alternatives to war that countries could settle their differences with? Twister, one hundred percent. 
Oh, and of course, karaoke, which as my fellow... For real! ...is how we settle a lot of disputes. Matt, you... <laughs> it's not even a game. <laughs> you just I mean, turn... here's the thing, though. You ever done karaoke with Pulitzer? Yes, karaoke? yes. Or, that ish is Yes, cool. it's not even... Four o'clock in the list. morning. Like, what are you guys doing? I'm eating goat. And I'm going, and I'm feeling. Oh my! I I had to do like a whole new world one day. Like, do it, do it. It's okay. Like what? It's okay, do it. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then later later like the 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 twelve year old like ne- nephew follows you right, and you're like that's cute, and does the exact same thing, but does it like infinitely better. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! Everybody, big shout out to everybody listening. Tune in to QSJ Radio. That is the end of our cast. Good job. Wow. He went right into like, (laughs) I'm good now. So we talked so much about the book and currently you are promoting the book. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. Like it has to be every five minutes. It doesn't stop. It is tattooed on my tongue at this point. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sitting here like he... When I went, when I went to uh, check your Instagram, one place to another, one place to another, and it's like it's just—I know he's stressed out. <laughs> There's no way he's not stressed out because, yes, you have the support system that I cannot imagine. Um, but at the same time, the travel and the time zones—you uh, know, first of all, when did it start? How many time zones in the last few days and where is it going from now? Not only that, how did you get this organized? So it's funny, um, you know, we, the publishing company had talked about like, you know, maybe we should do it because like they've, they've done little tours, like they've done little parties and celebrations, um, bringing the different authors from different you know, cities together. But, you know, because of the pandemic and because of all these such sort of challenges of convening and coming together, um, they decided not to do it. So for a while, it was like, oh, your tour is going to be virtual, which I'm like, <laughs> no, no I, it, it, this has got to be. So once I was triple, not only vaccinated, but boosted, once I knew that people could also get boosted, once I knew that I could do this defensively, scientifically, as safely as I could, get it. right? Then I announced it. I started organizing it. And this is, if anything, this tour has been the truest test of my network Mm. And and mm. my ability to activate networking. Like if people say, you know, networking is key, networking is important. The, my tour is absolutely testament to that because this is this comes from me literally calling friends and coworkers and colleagues and partners in crime throughout all of my life. Whether it is, it, I mean, whether it was uh, an old colleague of mine from a previous work or an old business that I used to run, um, or of course, like my 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 own family. You know, they've been amazing in hosting me. Um, to just, you know, other, you know, fellow activists, fellow artists, you know, who were eager to have me in their city. And actually what I discovered is, you know, success builds on success. And so I, and I knew that I kind of betted on that, right? I knew that if I just said, hey, I'm going to do a, a, a book reading in this city and this city. And all it was was literally just me crashing on my brother's couch in Austin and reading to like my cousins and his friends. It's still a book reading in Austin. It makes people realize, oh, I'm willing to go there. And then, of course, once I said that, they said, well, if you're going to be in Austin, you're going to have to come to L.A. You're going to have to come to San Francisco. You have to come to here, here, here. 
And then that's when things started to get really serious and real. And I tapped into my many, many years as an event planner. I used to plan fashion shows all across the the world. Um, Yeah, I used to run one of the large, if not the largest fashion, ethical fashion show in Washington, D.C. for more than 10 years. And that, if anything, that also taught me how to, you know, really activate, um, you know, events remotely, you know, from afar. And so, you know, we booked the, you know, we booked and were, or I was sponsored, you know, by, by event spaces, by people. And then we activated the network, right? And before long, we know, and one of the things to also say is that I specifically chose October because it is LGBTQ History Month and Filipino American History Month. And I led with that, right? So I went to my queer community. I went to my Filipino community yes. and I said, I want to be the event that you put on in celebration of our month, of our tribute month. And frankly, a lot of it was like me taking an event off their hands. They were like, oh my God, thank God. I'm like, I don't have to do this. Wow. I'll just put you and your book. And that's our event for the month. Wow, and so, nice. <laughs> and I covered two things. I covered both the gays and the Filipinos. <laughs> so I did that. Um, and then and then it just you know, it snowballed from there. And actually, I'm, I'm continuing to get requests and bookings because of it. When I finally booked 10 cities, um, so it started off in New York City, and then, of course, a big launch in D.C. Then I flew to Dallas and Austin, and then from there went to Oakland and San Francisco. Those are two separate things. And then from there went to San Diego, from San Diego to Malibu, from Malibu to historic Filipino town, to Cerritos, California. And then tonight I'm doing a reading in Melrose. And then I end the entire thing in Santa Barbara, California, where my family first immigrated to First at a reading at the Gay Straight Alliance of my old high school. Wow. And then ending up in the Santa Barbara Filipino community, the very first community that my immigrant family found and was embraced by and, and where we settled. And so for me, it's a complete full circle come home moment that I'm really, really proud to have been able to execute. And and once again, it's it's all through the network, it's all through the support network. Yo, and my stress yo. was I stressed, yes, getting to this. But once I got to the city, man. The love and support and just the fact that I was seeing people that I haven't seen since the pandemic, even before then, it was just love. All it was wow. was an alcohol love. Wow. I know I know I know one of the big things it, it, it might not it might not look like it, but I know that like these home cooked meals is something <laughs> more special than anything that's going on. Um your first book I mm-hmm. you know, you keep saying uh something the network, right? Right. I'm like, should I test mine? And I'm like, <laughs> nah, I'm, <laughs> I'll be stuck. You'd be surprised, man. People, if nothing else, these days, particularly right now, after a full year and a half of being locked away, people are like, yes, please come. I will do whatever. <laughs> like, I want to see. I just wanna, <laughs> you know, and and you know, if you give them an experience, and I did make sure that my readings are an experience. Um, you know, I mean, my launch. My launch in D.C. had a gay gospel choir to start. It in the middle was a drag queen, the the same drag queen that I write about in the book that replicated nice. their number in the book. And then it had me singing, like basically as part of the chorus, you know, throughout it, um, with readings and a Q and A and a Kiki with me and the artist. And it was an experience, right? And I have tried to bring that actually, including things like music, you know, and and art and 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 celebration of storytelling all across all of these experiences, all across the cities. Wow. Wow. A whole concert. <laughs> a whole concert. It's, it's a show. It's, 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 I have, I have not been part of that, but I am really grateful that you took a break to talk to us. You're sitting down. You still gave us a show. 
<laughs> you still did your thing. Michael Damlau, um, The Wisdom of Gunkles, A Story of Gay Uncles. And there are so many background stories. You guys got to check this out, man. It's not even, I'm not even done. Okay. I had to reread it like, wow, is it really, is, if you got a gunkle, hit him up today. (laughs) Tell him Michael sent you. (laughs) Michael, thank you so much for sitting with us, man. Absolutely. Thank you so much for this amazing opportunity, this platform, and for able to speak to your listeners. We'll talk soon on the second book, which I don't know when that's going to happen. I'm probably there already. The editors are hitting you up. Like, you ready for number two? All right. (laughs) Thank you so much, and um, so much success I know is going to happen with this book. And um, be careful out there, and we'll talk soon. Put on the Deborah.